Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. I'm going to read from the first verse through 23. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. For Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go down, as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And we're not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. And went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took some of the spoil 
sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. So bitter review again. Uh, Saul's, Saul has sinned in regard to the Amalekites, right? The Amalekites were to be devoted to the ban. They were to be utterly destroyed. All that they had, all their property, all the people, all the children, male and female, animals, uh, were to be destroyed. Amalek was to be punished for Amalek's sin. And God, God's means was going to be the king of Israel and his armies, right? And so the, the, the sin was of the Amalekites was going to come to an end. God's punishment, the day of God's punishment had come. Uh, Saul determined that what he desired was more important than what God commanded, right? That's, that's the issue. Saul determined that what he desired was more important or took precedence over what God had commanded him to do. Okay, and then we get into more excuse-making from, from Saul. And then the word of the Lord comes to Samuel. And the first thing we have to deal with is is the first statement here in verse 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. And this is, so this is the Lord speaking to Samuel. And the Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king. And then he gives two reasons as to why he regrets he has made Saul king. Why, first, he has turned away from following me. And second, he's not carried out my commands. And those really are the, the two parts of of unbelief. Right? Think about that. Those are the two parts of unbelief. Turning from God and ignoring his commands. Why, why would I say that the first part is turning from God? Well, think of, think of what Romans chapter 1 points out about unbelief. Romans chapter 1, 28 says, This, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, 
that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And so it says that, that these unbelievers did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. That is a turning from God. They know there's a God by what has been created, right? It testifies there's a God. And yet they deny, they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. So that, that's that turning from God, a refusal to acknowledge him. A refusal to acknowledge him. And that's what God says about Saul. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned, turned from following me. And then it says that they, in, Roman, in this section of Romans, that uh, these unbelievers do things which are not proper. Although they know the ordinance of God, they do things which are not proper. Right? And that's not carrying out the commands of God, not carrying out what it's written. And that's the other part of the, this accusation from God against Saul. He has not... He has turned from following me, and he has not carried out my commands. So not acknowledging God, turning away from God, is a matter of the heart, the affections, the will. And then we have Romans one twenty one, which says, For even though they knew God, even though they knew God, they didn't do what? Not obey, it doesn't honor him. Or give him thanks. Right? For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They knew something of God, and yet they refused to honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And so... So here we see the effects of unbelief in Saul coming to full fruition. The effects of unbelief, right? We've seen, we talked about in earlier sermons, we talked about the amazing things that were happened to Saul, right? The spirit coming upon Saul, right? Saul prophesying with the prophets, all these incredible things. And yet what we see here is the, the fruit of unbelief. It appears that, that Samuel, though he had operations of the Spirit upon him, they weren't toward regeneration. He was an unbeliever. And so he's turning from God. Turning from God. Turn from God means you know him, but then you cease to honor him as God. You refuse to give him thanks. Think about that. You may, you may feel that a little bit in your own walk. It's a struggle to be continually think, thanking the Lord, right? Through all trials, through all prosperities, whatever he may bring. And yet, you know that when thanksgiving and honoring of God falls off, then you're turning away. That's what that indicates. It means you're turning away from God and you are, de- you are deciding and depending to do what you will, you are deciding that your means are better than what than obedience to God's commands. Just exactly what Saul uh, is experiencing. Ephesians 
Another passage that came to mind as I was thinking about Saul is Ephesians 5, 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things. Always giving thanks for all things. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. Right? And so there again is that command, that giving of thanks. Those who turn away from God refuse to thank God. Those who are pursuing God grow in their thanksgiving toward God. To the point where their thanksgiving, they can give thanks to God for and in everything. The hard dispensations that God brings, brings out thanksgivings in God's people, right? We can thank Him because we know that what He has determined for us is good. It's as part of His good will. And so, and so Saul, again, thinking about Saul, those two things. He has turned back from following me. He has turned away from me and has not carried out my commands. The proof of the inward turning away is the relaxing of outward obedience, isn't it? When When the heart and the thanksgiving leaves off and you cease to honor God, right? There's not much praise. You haven't exhorted one another with psalms, hymns. You haven't exhorted yourself with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And, um... The, your heart is turning from the Lord. Uh, the proof of that is, is the leaving off of obedience. The proof of that is the leaving off of obedience. The outward um, show of obedience. If your love for God grows cold, your disobedience will inevitably increase. And that seems like an obvious statement, right? Your love for God grows cold, your disobedience will increase... And it's put the, in the, the, the reverse, if you love me, you will keep my commands, right? If you love me, you will keep my commands. If your love grows cold, you will disobey my commands, we could say. So how do you make sure your love for God does not grow cold? How do you make sure you aren't turning away from the Lord? Well, do what it says in Romans. Honor him and thank him. Those are two very simple things. But if you are continually honoring God before pagans, before co-workers, before your friends, your family, your children, if you're con- constantly honoring God and giving thanks, it's good fruit. It's good fruit. It will keep you um, from turning away. Now, I skipped over that, those two first words of verse 11. I regret. God regrets? How in the world does God regret? What is regret? Um, well, does this mean that God made Saul king and then only afterward found that he, you know, as he found out that Saul was a bad king, 
that he wished he hadn't made him king? Is that how it works? Is that how it works with God? It means that, um, if it means that, if you believe that's what it means, then you have just made God impotent. You have just denied his omniscience. He has no foreknowledge. He has no knowledge at all. He is just a man. And he is bandied about, and he is confused, and he waits for actions to happen before he can respond. That is, that is, not, a, that is not God. And so, the, so how do we explain this? Um, uh, I'm not good with denying omniscience to God. And if you are, um, you're not a Christian, and you must repent. Genesis 6.6 6 says the same thing, right? Back at the beginning of creation, right? He, he regretted that he had made man. And it talks about, it talks about this. It talks about him grieving that he had made man, that his heart grieved. Now, we could explain all of this is in with that big word that I can't ever pronounce. These are anthropomorphisms, right? This is, this is divine omniscience and omnipotence being explained to us in human terms so that we can just wrap our minds around it, so that we can have some clue what God is doing, okay? And so it, it could be that. Just, just like when Scripture describes God as having eyes... And hands, right? Forms. Um, that, that's, uh, that's a way for us to get to understand him. God is invisible, right? Um, anthropo, or anthropopathisms. Have you ever heard that term? Um, anthropomorphisms are man-like forms. Anthropopathisms are man-like emotions, Right, so, so us getting to understand, God, God is lisping to us so that we can understand the affections of God, the, the, the passion of God. It's hard to talk about these things, isn't it? But this is a condescension of language so that we might begin to understand God. But think about this also. What does this express, okay? If God, if God isn't surprised by anything, if he's omniscient, then he's not looking back and saying, well, that didn't go as I planned. I mean, that's ridiculous, okay? That denies providence, sovereignty, omniscience, um, middle not everything, okay? That un-God's God. But, but what does this express? I regret that I made Saul king. And that he turned from me and that he disobeyed my command. What does that express? Whoa. All right. We got a lot there. Um, uh, His holiness, disappointment at the outcome. Is God unaware of the outcome? So it's not a regret at the outcome. It's a disappointment. Um, yeah, I mean, let me wrap that up. I think what, what we see here is what we saw in Genesis 6. Is that God, there's divine sorrow for sin. 
There's divine sorrow for sin. I regret that I've made. This is is sin. Right? Even knowing, even knowing what would come, the events could fill God with sorrow. Even knowing what's coming. They could fill him with sorrow. Connect to verse 11. Um, I am sorry that I made Saul king because he has turned back from following me. Um, One commentator said, It is a tragedy when Saul refuses to be Yahweh's disciple. It grieves God. Nonchalance is never listed as an attribute of the true God. Nonchalance, like, yeah, you know, just whatever. God is not the God of of whatever. It grieves God, right? Now, our confession says that God is without passions, right? And what what that means to teach us is that God is not controlled by his emotions. God is not controlled by his passions as we are. We're overcome by anger. We're overcome by lust. We're overcome by sadness, right? It begins dictating to us what we're going to do and feel and think, right? But, but not God. God is without passions, but that does not mean he is dispassionate or heartless, right? Cold. He is without passions in the sense that he he is not controlled by them, but he is not dispassionate. He, he is grieved here by sin. And so this verse is here meant to demonstrate sorrow over sin. That's what it's meant to teach. This is not a theological statement at this point. That comes later in the passage. Right here, it's meant to express sorrow over sin, God's sorrow over sin. And then this, verse 29, if you skip forward to the the same passage, and I, I didn't read this, but look at verse 29. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. (laughs) So if you want to say God is regretting and he's changing his mind about what was going to be good, I mean, the very same passage refutes that view. God's not a man that he would change his mind. He has done his holy will in this. He does not regret unforeseen unforeseen events. That's how our regret would be. You know, I'm, I regret that I ate the third piece of steak. Because now I've got a stomachache. I didn't anticipate the stomachache, Right? But that's not what God's doing here. He's not, you know, Saul is not his third piece of steak. Okay? Um, Regret, in our sense, would be a change of mind. I thought it was good. Now I realize it's bad. That is not what God is doing here. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change. Now that verse, that's meant to be a theological statement about what God is. It is pure theology. God is not a man. He will not change. He will not lie. Right? And so there we get the theological definition of God's character. But here in verse 11, we get sorrow for sin. We see God's heart, so to speak. Okay, 
Now, now that we've worked through that, Samuel's response is, um, stands out to me. He hears from God. He hears God res- express this, this sorrow, this regret. And then Samuel, Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. He cried out all night. Have you ever been so distressed? Have you ever been so distressed you cried out all night? I think some of you have. I think many of you have known that that shocking event, that loss, and you've cried out to God all night. Um, Surely many have known that. Why is he distressed? Well, remember history. Why is Samuel distressed? He has his own regrets. I mean, real regrets in this. Um, Samuel had been brought up and was beginning to deliver the people. And Samuel was rejected by the people. And Saul was then anointed by Samuel. Right? The people had rejected Samuel and rejecting God. And now, here they are. And God is coming to Samuel and saying, I regret. And so like a man, he arises to go to Saul. And Saul does, has been doing what? What has Saul been doing? And this, this should have stood out to you in this passage. What has Saul been doing after? Uh, he's been honoring himself. He built a monument to himself, Scripture says. They've just... They've just defeated and destroyed the Amalekites. They're coming out of battle. And the first thing Saul does is honor himself, which no godly king would ever do. What he would do is set up a memorial to God and his mercy. Here, Saul sets up a monument for himself. And then Saul says to Samuel, I have carried out the command of the Lord. He's a liar. Saul is just a bold-faced liar at this point. I have carried out the command of the Lord, and he knows that he hasn't. It's so obvious that he hasn't. Why is it so obvious? Because they're surrounded by beautiful-looking animals who are making a racket. He's just, I've I've carried out the command of the Lord. And, you know, like a little child that has, like, chocolate all over his face. I didn't eat the cookie. You know? These animals are all over the place. The liar... Here's what happens with liars. Liars start with their lie and then make excuses when their lie is unmasked. And that's exactly what we see in Saul. Liars lie, but then when they're caught, they begin making excuses for their their lie. I mean, we we all know this, right? We all have been caught in lies before. You lie and then you get caught and then you give excuses why it was prudent for you to lie. Why Why it was good to do, why you had to do it, why your hand was forced. Well, let me tell you about this and let me tell you about that. Well, that's, again, what he does. (laughs) 
Blessed Samuel comes to Saul and said, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. I mean, smile on his face. Everything's good. And then Samuel just stops. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? What a man. You're lying. You have not carried this out. What then is this bleeding of the sheep? It's so evidently, you know, so evidently true that he has disobeyed the Lord's ban. He is turning away, and his turning away has led to disobedience. Now cue the excuses. Cue the excuses. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people, spared the best of the sheep and oxen. A couple things in there, right? The people and the best. People and the best. The people did it. They spared it. They gave us the best. And here's another, another excuse for his lie. It's to sacrifice to the Lord. It's, you know, it's, it's not for us. It's for the Lord. It's for the Lord. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Utterly destroyed, right? Everything was to be utterly destroyed. The rest, he says, that should stand out. The rest has been destroyed. He is obeying only by halves, which is not obedience at all. And so his excuses are the people, just like Aaron and the calf. They spared, notice that word, they spared the best of the animals. Spared them. Right? We had mercy on this portion of what we were to devote to the ban. We, we had mercy Right for, for a good and honorable purpose to sacrifice to God, the rest totally, utterly destroyed. That is disobedience. That is just obvious disobedience to God's command. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. He reminds, Samuel is now reminding Saul of history. Remember your history. You were the least, and God raised you up to king. And he gave you this command, right? And the command was to utterly exterminate them. He's reminding Saul of the honor God had given to him. And then verses 20 to 21, then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. He's doubling down, right? I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission that word that Samuel used, I went on the mission that God called me to. I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and, and I've brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. So now he's in the phase of a lie where you begin showing more disobedience. You, you've just run yourself into such a hole that now everything's coming out. What, Agag's alive? Why did Agag not get devoted to the ban? 
Okay, Same excuses, but he reveals more. His conscience is guilty, isn't it? He's almost confessing his sins now, in a sense. I brought back Agag. He can't help but mention that. And then we get Samuel's rebuke. Well, before that, he says, but the people, again, blaming the people, but the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction. Notice what he just said there. The choicest of the things devoted to destruction. To sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Took the best things that were devoted to destruction and saved them from from God's sacrifice so that we could do our own little sacrifices. And then Samuel, in these words, we just have to sit on these words and think about them in in our own walk with the Lord. Has the Lord as much delight... In burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And what that means is rebellion is is as bad as consulting a witch. And insubordination is as bad as idolatry. Insubordination. Who's he insubordinated to? God. He's disobeyed God's command. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now, think about this for a second, and I want to make one very tender um, application. Think about this. Saul wants, I mean, this statement, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? God spent much time defining how the people were to sacrifice to him, didn't he? There are books dedicated to this. There are strict guidelines. People lost their lives when they did not sacrifice according to the way that God called them to sacrifice in the temple, in the tabernacle, right? And and yet here is the statement. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, in keeping his commands, in following the law, right? And and the implied answer is, is he does not have as much delight in the sacrifices as he does in obedience, right? That that is the, the answer. You think of the beginning of Isaiah, the people, people were offering sacrifices and God says, your, your sacrifices are loathsome to me. What I want you is for you to obey. Stop offering the sacrifices of hypocrites, right? The sacrifices of hypocrites. Those who disobey and yet offer the sacrifices. One commentator I, I read, and, and I'll divulge his name because it's significant here, and I think it's rather ironic. This is Peter Lightheart. Peter Lightheart, who has been quite an advocate for Pado communion that's modern-day sacrifice and right. He says, performing a rite of sacrifice while living in disobedience is abominable. And I say, amen. 
That's exactly what this passage is saying. Performing a right away from obedience is an abomination to God. Now that fills us all with fear and trembling. I understand that. Um, Another commentator said, Formal worship cannot be substituted for obedient life, external devotions for internal submission. That's the same thing Lightheart just said. Right, let me say that again. Formal worship cannot be substituted for obedient life, external devotions for internal submission. I, uh, God desires obedience and not sacrifice. So to bring this specifically to paedo-communion, that's where I'm going to go tonight. What is paedo-communion? Paedo-communion is by virtue of baptism, a child is welcome to the Lord's table. Pure and simple. By virtue of baptism, that covenant child is welcome to the Lord's table. There's no examination by the elder board. There's no, there's no hurdles to pass. There's no cognitive ability to follow the commands in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine yourself. It's just by virtue of baptism that a child would be welcome to the Lord's table. Um, I spent three years in a paedo-communionist church. And this led me to see many who um, did not understand what Samuel says to Saul here. What they wanted was ritual away from obedience, okay? Um, I remember sitting in on membership interviews as an intern, and parent after parent after parent came into the church and said, finally, a church where my kids can come to the table and can participate in the rituals of the church. As if they hadn't been before, right? As if they had been excluded from the church, you know, cast out to not hear the preaching of the word and to not be ministered to um, in all the respects that covenant children are um, but finally, a church where, I, where my kids can come to the table. And this is the crux of the 1 Corinthians 11 warning by Paul. There must be internal submission or the external devotion is an abomination. There must be internal submission or the external devotion is an abomination. Just like in baptism where faith is not found. A baptism without faith is an abomination. Right? There's no, it's not done in obedience to the Lord. um, Whether it's that person or the parent's faith, of course. Right? Um, Now, just thinking about this. Pato communion is making inroads into the Presbyterian denominations. Uh, the CREC is completely Pato communionist, ninety-eight percent. Um, the PCA, there are very strongly Pato communionist um, presbyteries in the PCA, or at least they 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 hold to it. Um, and really. W- my frustration, I think it's good to think through the issues of when do, when do children come to the table. I mean, I think that's, that's absolutely something we should be thinking about. 
But what paedo-communionists have forced us to do is to ask the question, at what age should our children come to the table? Whereas I want the question to be, when should our children come to the table? But now everybody talks about age, right? What age should they come to the table? No, it's not simply a question of age, right? That, that is, in fact, not even a factor in who gets to come to the Lord's table. Age doesn't matter, right? It's, does that child give evidence of the work of God in their heart? Then they can come to the Lord's table. When? When there's evidence of internal submission to the Lord, as well as we can discern that, right? And it's not infallible. But paedo-communists have hijacked how we talk about our children. We ask questions like, when can they come to the table? And we mean age, not maturity or understanding. I'm so tired of that conversation. It should be about maturity and understanding and evidence of faith at work in them, and yet it's just boiled down to this ridiculously simplistic question of age. We should abhor approaching rituals in the church in that manner. We should rather be focused on obedience, not ritual, not sacrifice. Focus on obedience, which in this case means I want to see you discipling your children in obedience to God and his commands. Don't ask me about what age they can come to the table. I want to see you disciple your children. That's what I want to see. That's the big issue. And so we should rather be focused on discipleship rather than access. But paedo-communionists have got us talking only about access. When, when, what age, what age, what age. And I say, no, no, let's talk about how do we disciple our children. How do we shoot for obedience? How do we love them? How do we train them? How do we teach them? How do we discipline them? How do we talk to them about what's good? How do we help them learn the catechism? I mean, how do we do all this training, this devotion, all this other stuff that actually takes time, whereas sacramentalism takes no time? And I'll say this, sacramentalism, right, believing that we're saved by sacraments, and and there are some paedo-communionists that believe that, there are some young communionists who abhor that idea, right? They would say, no, it's young communion, I'm not a sacramentalist, sacramentalism, I don't believe my kids are saved by sacrament, but I'm telling you, some paedo-communionists do, right? They believe they're saved by ritual, regardless of whether they demonstrate any obedience to God. And so we, so the, the, whole, the whole question of discipleship now has been hijacked by this question of age. And then sacramentalism comes along and falsely assures many unbelievers in their unbelief. We should be concerned that ourselves and our children obey more so than they come to the sacrifices. 
I simply think paedocommunists have got us focused on that wrong question. It's led us to remove our focus from discipleship, the nurture and admonition of the faith, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Our children, after all, will be saved, how? By faith, not by communion. Our children will be saved by faith, not by communion. Um, and so let's not be so precious with our children. And the table. Let's not be so precious about our children and the table. Rather, speak to them about the glory of God, not the lesser glory of the table. Speak to them about the glory of God, okay? And then when they're able to follow the commands that are written in 1 Corinthians 11, like a man must be able to examine himself, then train them about how this enhances their already full view of the glory of God because they've been taught all the word. Uh, Train them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Disciple them and do not lean on the ordinances. You know, we're all lazy. We all tend toward laziness. I tend toward laziness. You tend toward laziness. Sacramentalism is the lazy man's religion. I mean, it just is, right? Give me the water, boom, I'm in. Give me the bread and wine, boom, I'm nourished. Whereas God says, you you, you need to love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Right, that's that's impossible. That you have to like cry out to the Holy Spirit with groaning to help you do that, right? And so... um, we're all lazy and we'll, we'll, we'll lean on ordinances if we're given the opportunity. That is Saul. Saul wanted, Saul was doing everything he could to have a great sacrifice. He was focused on that sacrifice and just thumbing his nose at what God had told him to do. And the rebuke is intense here. This is what Matthew Henry says. I'll close here. Though Saul was not a man of any great acquaintance with religion, yet he could not but know this. One, that nothing is so pleasing to God as obedience. No, not sacrifice and offering and the, and the fat of rams. See here what we should seek and aim at in all the exercises of religion, even acceptance with God, that he may delight in what we do. If God be well pleased with us in our services, we are happy, we have gained our point, but otherwise, to what purpose is it? Now here, we are plainly told that humble, sincere, and conscientious obedience to the will of God is more pleasing and acceptable to him than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. A careful conformity to moral precepts recommends us to God more than all ceremonial observances. No one believes that. No one believes that. Right? Evangelicals don't believe that because vibe is their sacrifice, right? Smoke machines is their sacrament. Right? They want that cheap thrill of worship, but not obedience. Paid communionists want the table, but not the obedience. God is more glorified 
and self more denied by obedience than by sacrifice. It is much easier to bring a bullock or ram to be burnt upon the altar than to bring every high thought into obedience to God and the will subject to his will. The final verdict is, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. That's the final verdict. And in Matthew Henry, he says of that verse, those are unfit and unworthy to rule over men who are not willing that God should rule over them. Next time we look at Saul's repentance, the rest of chapter 15. Saul's repentance in the rest of chapter 15. That's what we'll look at. Let's pray. Father, Father, we, we are so lazy. Uh, we are like Saul. We want to find something that, that we can do, in a sense, very easily to assure our own salvation, to assure the salvation of our children. We look high and, and low. We look for it in the way we discipline, the way we even feed our kids. Lord, I mean, we look for it everywhere. And yet, Father, we know that it is only by a work of your Spirit bearing fruit in us to obedience. Lord, that will give us assurance of our faith, assurance of our salvation. Father, I pray that you would guard us from, from any, any sacrifice that we erect to, to falsely assure us rather that we would shoot for obedience, that we would protect faith and a good conscience, that we would delight in your law, that we would know what your word commands, that we would live in the fear of you. And Father, that we would also be nourished by you in worship then. And so, Father, reveal those things to us. Give us humility in this. Help us to understand. Help us to correct where wrong Lord, help us to repent where our views are not right. Lord, we pray that we would not turn away from you, that you would guard us by your Spirit. And that, Lord, that we would do so by, by offering to you praises and thanksgivings, that we would honor you as God, that we would be devoted to your word, that we would have a very simple life of devotion to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.